Our Bible reading this morning is taken again from the prophecy of Habakkuk, Habakkuk chapter 3. And we're going to read there, Habakkuk chapter 3. And we're going to read the first eight verses of the chapter. Habakkuk chapter 3. Let's hear the word of the Lord, reading, of course, from the authorized version. I want you to pay particular attention to the words. For those who are listening online, and we're glad to have you, the words will come up on the screen, but we'll encourage you as well to get your own Bible and mark the, the words with a pen. It'll help you to remember. Let's hear the word of the Lord. Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 1, a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet upon Shigeanoth. O Lord, I have heard thy speech and was afraid. O Lord, revive thy work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years make known in wrath remember mercy. God came from Timan. And the Holy One from Mount Paran, Selah. His glory covered the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise. And his brightness was as the light. He had horns coming out of his hand, and there was the hiding of his power. Before him went the pestilence, and burning coals went forth at his feet. He stood and measured the earth. He beheld and drove asunder the nations. And the everlasting mountains were scattered. The perpetual hills did bow. His ways are everlasting. I saw the tents of Cushan in affliction. And the curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was the Lord displeased against the rivers? Was thine anger against the rivers? Was thy wrath against the sea, that thou did ride upon thine horses, and thy chariots of salvation? Amen. We'll end the reading there at verse 8. We pray the Lord will stamp with his own approval and blessing this reading of the Holy Scriptures. Now this morning, as we continue our series of expository sermons in the book of Habakkuk, we're turning our attention to Habakkuk chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. And my theme today is entitled, Being Prayerful for Real Revival. Now, last week we thought of the concept of becoming passionate about real revival. And on that occasion, I set before you Habakkuk's sigh for revival. Oh, Lord, we thought of that oh being wrenched out of his heart, coming from his innermost being. He is chiefly concerned for the well-being of the work of God. God has a work. And Habakkuk cries out, Oh, Lord, revive thy work. Not my work, but thy work. He's thinking of the state and sin in the country. He's thinking of the sin and state of the church in his day. He's thinking of the state and sins of the professing Christians in the church in his day. He's thinking of their coldness and their shallow, careless lifestyle. 
And he sighs for revival. We thought of the subject of revival. What is it? What is real revival? What did he mean when he used the word revive? We looked at it negatively. I told you four things what it was not. Then we looked at it positively, what it is. It's a, it's a quickening by the Holy Spirit of God. Then we thought of the source of true revival. And true revival always and only begins with God. Whether it's the salvation of one soul or a hundred thousand, God is the offer of true revival. We thought about the sovereignty of revival. God has a time, a place to work out his eternal purpose in the lives of individuals and in the life of congregations and nations. We close with thinking about the significance of revival. Revival doesn't deal with all the issues that the church faces, probably creates many more. But in every true revival, first and foremost, here's the significance of it. God is glorified. God is known. God is feared and reverenced in a deeper and in a greater way. People bless the Lord for his mercy and his goodness to them. Now, today, I want us to, to move on. Remember, we're, we're expounding through Habakkuk, and we've come to this theme of revival, and we're going to spend a few weeks dealing with this particular subject. And I want us to think not only being passionate for revival, but let's think about being prayerful for real revival. Now, look with me at verse 1. It says, A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet upon Shige and Oth. Notice the word prayer. It's in capital letters. It's emphasized. It, it jumps out as if it's in, in, in bold letters for a reason. Whose prayer is it? Habakkuk the prophet. We're, we're told it's upon Shige and Oth. What does that mean? Well, the commentators are divided, but literally it means a musical note. You see, this prayer was a song to be played upon stringed instruments. How do I know that? Turn to chapter 3, verse 19. Look at the last words. To the chief singer on my stringed instruments. And John Calvin suggests Habakkuk not only prayed this prayer in real time in his day and generation, 600 BC, he not only wrote it down for us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but more than that, he taught the people to sing it long before they went into captivity. Habakkuk knows that the Babylonians are coming. He knows that judgment is sure and certain because of sin. So Habakkuk wisely gives the people of God, this is remnant in his day, a prayer song to, to take with them into a pagan godless land. A song to give them help and hope in a dark and, and difficult day. You, you think of the hymns and the spiritual songs sung by many poor colored slaves in our country, in the United States of America. They sang these unique songs to each other. They, they taught them to their children to remember the Lord and his work in the land of captivity. And that was deliberate to encourage their hearts and minds in such times. So I want you to think of a prayer song set to music. And of course, a prayer song set to music is easier to remember. I re can recall our Joanna in the back of the car in particular, but it was true of the other children as well. And 
they learnt their times tables uh, by listening to the, the tape in the car and it was sort of set to a, a catchy little tune. You, you think of the children and the children's meetings when we had children's meetings, we taught them the books of the Bible, the Old Testament, the New Testament. Uh, there were 12 disciples and, 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 and you see, they sang these songs in the house of God and, and, and it was a, a, an aid to, to our brains to, 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 to catch on to the words using the tune. And that's exactly what Habakkuk's doing here. He has come to understand the great need for the church in his day and generation. And what is it? It's a mighty heaven-sent sky blue, sin-cleansing, devil-disturbing, genuine revival of true Bible-believing religion. And that's what he longs for. And that's what he's passionate about. And he has diagnosed what the church's greatest need is in his day. He's identified. If you went to Habakkuk and said, Habakkuk, what's the greatest need of the church in 600 BC? He would have said one word, revival. Now, he is diagnosed because of the state and sins of the country, the church and the Christian. And that's what he longs for. And having diagnosed what the need is, ascertained the problem, and he said, well, what do you do now? Well, when you have a problem and you diagnose what the problem is, then you've got to take the next step. How can this problem be fixed? How can it be sorted out? And here's the answer. Be prayerful for revival. So Habakkuk gives himself to prayer. I want you to understand, when the Bible says a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet, it's a prayer for revival. Now that's the first thing. Think of the exercise of prayer for revival. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet upon Shigianoth. What was he praying about as I've said? The answer is very simple, folks. He's praying for revival. How, how do I know that? How can I be sure? Look at your Bible. Look at verse 2. O Lord, I have heard thy speech and was afraid. O Lord, revive thy work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years make known. In wrath remember mercy. Is that not a prayer for revival? Underscore it in your mind. He is praying about revival. When we were introduced to him, we were told he had a burden. The burden which Habakkuk the prophet to see. What was his burden? His burden was about revival for the church and the land in which he lived. He is burdened for revival. He's crying out to the Lord, O Lord, how long shall I cry? He's prayed a long time. He's prayed on and on. He didn't get an answer. And he sees the sin in the land. He sees the sin in the church. He sees the, the sin in the life of the professing child of God. And he cries to the Lord for divine intervention and help. See, let me say this morning, one of the great features of true revival is that it always begins with prayer. It's a plain fact that every true revival ever recorded in the scriptures or in church history is preceded by earnest, supplicatory, intercessory prayer. Special prayer, if I want to put it down simply, precedes a move of the Holy Spirit. Habakkuk felt that he needed a move of the Holy Spirit. And in order for that to happen, he had to pray about it. You think of the day of Pentecost, 
What preceded the day of Pentecost? Was it not a 10-day prayer meeting in the upper room? Remember what we read in Acts chapter 1 and verse 14. It says, These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the woman and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brethren. Did you know that in 1858, in New York, in the midst of an economic depression, a man called Jeremiah Lamphere, he started a midday prayer meeting in Fulton Street in New York. I, I've been to visit that. And he started with just himself. Then a couple of days later, there was two or three more. And then eventually there was about a dozen. And then all of a sudden, there was dozens of prayer meetings mushering into hundreds of prayer meetings all over New York. Think of 1859 here in Northern Ireland. Go to the little Kells schoolhouse. It's still there. You can visit it. One night a week, four young men met for prayer. Jeremiah McNeely, James McQuilkin, and two others. You think of the 1920s and the Reverend W.P. Nicholson and the prayer meetings that were held in various churches throughout Belfast and beyond. 1949 into 1950, the Isle of Lewis. What preceded the awakening there uh, under the Reverend Duncan Campbell? Two ladies in their 80s started a prayer meeting in their home, 10 o'clock at night, crying to God for his visitation upon Lewis because they were concerned about the state and sin in the land. You, you think of the 1950s, the 1960s, the late Dr. Paisley, and the weekend of prayer that he had from Friday through to Sunday waiting on God to move and work and pour out his spirit. You see, the Holy Scriptures is full of commands and exhortations to pray. Let, let me point you to two scriptures this morning. Turn there to the book of Ezekiel. Look with me at chapter 36. Ezekiel chapter 36. Listen to what God says. Verse 24 Ezekiel 36, 24, For I will take you from among the heathen and gather you out of all countries and I will bring you into your own land. Then will I sprinkle clean water upon you and ye shall be clean from all your filthiness and from all your idols will I cleanse you. A new heart also will I give you and a new spirit will I put within you. And I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and ye shall keep my judgments and do them. Now think of what God says he's going to do with the I wills. Sure and certain. It's guaranteed. It's concrete. Now listen to verse 37. Thus saith the Lord. I will yet for this. Be inquired of by the house of Israel to do it for them. I will increase them with men like a flock. Over there in the book of Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 44 and then the verse 3, here's the evangelical prophet under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And God through him is saying this, for I will yet pour water upon him that is thirsty. Notice the condition, thirsty. And floods upon the dry ground. Does dry ground not cry out for water? I will pour my spirit upon thy seed and my blessing upon thine offspring. And if I add a third scripture in, I think of the words of Psalm 85, verse 6. 
This is what the psalmist said, Wilt thou not revive us again, that we thy people may rejoice in thee? And if you read Psalm 86 or 85 very carefully, and read through all the verses, the whole 13 verses, you'll discover that this is a prayer. A prayer of David. And at the heart of the prayer is, Wilt thou not revive us again, that we thy people may rejoice in thee? See, let me point out this morning, there's no, due, no genuine time of revival without intercession. If we sigh for revival, then we must also supplicate God for revival. Leonard Ravenhill says in his book, Why Revival Tarries, one of the reasons that he gives is there's no burden for it in the church. We're not thirsty for it. We're content to live without it. There's no brokenness. There's no burden about the state of things in the church or in the country. No prayer warriors. No young men to come forward like um, Jeremiah Lumphier and Jeremiah McNeely and James McQuilkin and others to give themselves to prayer. Remember, it was Rachel that prayed, give me children or I die. It was John Knox that said in his little house there in um, Princess Street in Scotland, give me Scotland or I die. We, all of us, I'm sure, love Northern Ireland this wee province, soon to celebrate its centenary next year. And what's the best thing that we can do for our country? Here's the answer, folks. Give ourselves to prayer. And one of the prayers that we could pray is, Lord, send us revival. Lord, visit us revival. I want to stress this morning, and if I said nothing else, there's a connection between being passionate about revival and praying for revival. It's the next logical step. Why is there not a move of the Holy Spirit in our day and generation? Is it because we're content to live without it? Is it because there's a coldness and a carelessness? Is it not true that prayer meeting numbers are declining? Have we lost our passion? Therefore, we're not praying as we ought. Could I ask this morning a very challenging question to my own heart? Have I a pressing concern to seek God? The prayer meeting is the engine room of the church. The boiler house of the church. The individual getting alone with God in the secret place. Matthew 6 and 6. The congregation meeting for prayer. The sad thing is we have lost our longing and passion. We haven't a true spirit of brokenness. Spurgeon said true revival starts with two or three praying. People that are distressed and troubled and anguished. People that have a flaming desire. The passion that they have rules them. They, they dream of it. They muse on it. It eats them up. It's the center of their, their being. They, 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 they can't wait. They, they, they refuse to miss the, the times of prayer. It's a sure sign that God is at work in the heart of mind. It was Matthew Henry that said, when God begins to do a great work, he'll pour out the spirit of grace and supplication. And what do we need? We need individuals 
on fire for God because fire begets fire. We need individuals who will give themselves to prayer because that spirit of prayer in one or two will, will ignite the spirit of prayer in others. Spurgeon said, give me a dozen young men who know God and know how to pray and to reveal in earnest prayer and I'll shake all of London. Is Belfast any different, folks? Is Carrie Duff any different? We need to pray for revival. We, we need to think of it. We, we need to take it at our heart. Oh, oh, it's easy to talk about it, isn't it? It's easy to think about revival. It's easy to read about revival. I, I have books on revival in the porta cabin at the back of the church. But oh, to experience it. How could we experience it? Here's the answer. Give ourselves to prayer. It's important that you grasp this. A personal prayer for revival. See, prayer will change you. A congregational prayer for revival. It'll change the church. A national revival. It'll change the country. Why does revival tarry? Is it because we're not praying for it? We don't see the need. Have we a spirit of Laodiceans within our hearts and minds, our buildings, our finance, our programs, but we're, we're comfortable. We're at ease. Where's the Lord in the church of the Laodiceans? He's outside the door. A weariness is set in. The focus is wrong. We're thinking of the temporal rather than the eternal. Here's the exercise of prayer for revival. Very quickly, I want you to think of the elements of prayer for revival. If you look at our text, it says, O Lord, I have heard thy speech and was afraid. O Lord, revive thy work in the midst of the years. See, Habakkuk, here's one of the elements of true prayer. Habakkuk was in awe of the Lord. Habakkuk is no longer arguing with God. He's no longer asking questions. Are you listening, Lord? Uh, where are you, Lord? Uh, Lord, are you sure that you know what you're doing and you're not making a mistake? No, Habakkuk's already bowed the knee. Habakkuk is waiting humbly upon the Lord. He's adoring the Lord now. His eyes are fixed in him. Think of the words, O Lord, I have heard thy speech and was afraid. O Lord, you see, it's mentioned twice under. He, he, he's not focusing on the problem of sin now. He, he, he's not focusing on the people and their backslidden state and condition. He's focusing on the Lord. He's thinking of all that God has said to him in chapter 1 and 2. Oh Lord, I have heard thy speech. He knows that judgment is coming. He knows the true state and sins of Judah. He knows even the end of the Babylonians. You see, the speech here refers to the word that God has spoken to him. And that's tremendous. I have heard thy word. Does the Bible not say to this man, will I look to him that is poor and of a contrary spirit who trembleth at my word? The word speech here can also be translated report. I have heard thy report. You see, he's thinking about the fame of God. He knows that God is not pretending to be someone famous. He knows that God is a fame and glory all peculiar to himself. He knows that God will not give his glory to another. Habakkuk has been brought to understand something. Something has gripped his heart and mind. And what is it? He's now in the place where he feels the sense of the reverential awe of God. He, he begins to be amazed at the fame of God. At, at the words of God. And he's now trembling. Notice the word. 
and was afraid. Here is the true response of his heart. He's a man in awe of God. A man now in submission to the Lord. A man who's not focused on the problem of sin and judgment. They're not dominating the scene or his mind the way they were. He's taken up with the Lord himself and his person. He's become supremely conscious of the Lord. Remember when Moses was ushered into the presence of God in Mount Sinai? We read in the book of Hebrews, I did exceedingly fear and quake. Job, when he was in the presence of God, said, I am vile. The psalmist in Psalm 51, who was crying to God for mercy, said, Behold, I was shaped in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me against thee. Thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight, that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest, and declare when thou judgest. We need to know God. Here's one of the elements of prayer. The God upon whom we call upon, we need to be in awe of him. We need to rediscover a reverential fear of him. A fear of him that impacts our life at home, our school life, our university life, our work life. Remember, he's a man who lives by faith. He has faith in the Lord. He's a saved man. He's now feeling that he's living in the very presence of God. A man who's an intimate knowledge of God. A man who's in fellowship with the Lord. Think again of what I said from Isaiah 62. 6 and verse 2, to this man will I look. To him that's poor. Oh, not, not poor financially, but poor in spirit. Uh, with a contrite heart, he's filled with a sense of brokenness. Lord, I'm, I'm vile. Lord, I'm a needy soul. And who trembleth at my word. Lord, I, I really fear thee. Lord, I believe in your word. Your word is true. Your word will stand. I'll stake my life upon it. You see, Habakkuk is focused on the Lord now. Not on the problem, not on the people, not on the punishment that's coming, but he's focused on the Lord. Here's the backbone of his prayer. Here's one of the key elements. He's an awful Lord. He's got his eye on him. God's person, God's power, God's provision, God's providence, God's purpose, God's promises. Notice quickly, not only did he need to be in awe of the Lord, but he needed to appeal to the Lord. O Lord, revive thy work. Think of what's mentioned here. Revive thy work. God is a work. And there's many aspects to it. And there's many references that we could turn to. Let me just um, turn you to Psalm 90. If we keep it in context and thinking about prayer. In Psalm 90, what did Moses pray about the work of God? Well, he prayed this. In Psalm 90, and look with me at the verse 16. Let thy work appear unto thy servants, and thy glory unto their children. And let the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us, and establish thou the works of our hands upon us. Yea, the work of our hands, establish thou it. See, God is a work. And many other references we could turn to in the Old Testament, like Isaiah 5 and 2, and Jeremiah 48 and 10. But think also of John chapter 4, if we come into the New Testament. Remember the Lord Jesus? This is what he said in relation to the salvation of the woman at the well. He says in John 4, verse 34, My meat is to do the will of him that sent me, and to finish his work. Say not ye there yet four months, and then cometh the harvest. Behold, I say unto you, lift up your eyes and look in the fields, for they are white already 
to harvest. Remember what the Holy Ghost said concerning um, uh, Paul and, and Barnabas there in Acts chapter 13 and in the verse 2. This is what the Holy Ghost says. Acts 13 verse 2. And as they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Ghost said, Separate me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work whereunto I have called them. And there in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58, uh, we, we read, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Are you troubled about the state of the church? Has the state of the church impacted upon you in such a way you realize the state of the church is affecting the state of the country? Because I believe this morning that a healthy church results in a healthy country. But remember, the work's not ours. It's not mine or yours. It's the Lord's work. And what does Habakkuk pray? Oh Lord, revive thy work. God is a work in the Old Testament, in the New Testament. Oh, that we could understand that. The cause of God. The church of Christ on earth and in heaven. Think of the matter here. Think of the word revive. I already told you last week it means to quicken. Think of breathing new life into it. Think of a fire that's dying and, and something that breathes new life into it, whether it's a bellows or whether they put some little uh, sticks on it or, or put a fire lighter into it. That, that, that's the thought here. He, he's got a big concern more than anything else for the health and state of the church. And that's what he's taken up with. That's what he's passionate about. That's what he's praying about. Think of the manifestation here. If you go back to Habakkuk, what does it say? O Lord, revive thy work. In the midst of the years, make known. In wrath, remember mercy. Think of the manifestation. In the midst of the years, make known. Make it known, Lord. Lord, let me see this. Let others see this. Did you know that long after Habakkuk's day, there was a godly king raised up in Judah called Josiah? You can read about it in 2 Corinthians, 2 Chronicles 34, verse 35. When he was aged eight, he became king. When he was 16, he set his heart to seek the Lord. When he was 20, he began a work of reformation. When he was 26, he was heartbroken and distressed. For the work of God, he humbled himself before the Lord. He knew that judgment was coming. The Babylonians were just down the road. And the prophetess told him that he would have a stay of execution. Why? Because he humbled himself to seek God. And who knows if we humble ourselves to seek God. And ask God to, to deal with this pestilence and this virus. That, that God will be merciful. And that God will do it. It was godly Josiah that brought about a period of revival and reformation, a reformation of the book. You can read about it in Nehemiah chapter 8 as well. Make us to understand. Help us to know you're sovereign. Let me see this. Let me grasp this. Let, let me take note of it. Not only is there a mention here and a matter here and a manifestation, but there's a mercy here. He says in wrath, remember mercy. He knows that God is a God of wrath, that God hates sin. And that the judgment and punishment will be brought to bear upon all sin. But he also knows that God is merciful. His mercy endures forever. He's not only taken up with the majesty of God and the might of God, but he's thinking about the mercy of God. 
You see, he's accepting now. He's a humble and honest heart and mind before the Lord. And there's the elements. We could think of many others, but these two, in need of being in awe of God and making our appeal to the Lord. Think very quickly of the encouragement to pray for revival. If you look with me at chapter 3, verse 2, 3, it says, God came from Teman and the Holy One from Mount Paran, Selah. Think about that. God came down. You see, there's an encouragement to pray for revival. God's ability. Or God's authority. Who rules the world? Who really cares about God's work? Who really cares about the church? Who is overall absolute sovereign control? Do you know that even the devil and the demons in hell have to obey the Lord? This world is not under the control of the devil or his minions. God is sovereign. God is on the throne. And all that God does is for the good of his church and the glory of his name. It's for the blessing and benefit of his church. And that was true in the Old Testament. It's true in the New Testament. God rules and reigns in unrivaled sovereignty. The psalmist said, the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. And of course, Habakkuk knows that judgment is coming. And he argues for God to send the true revival in light of God's authority. That God is sovereign. And he says, Lord, it's your work. Here's what you've said about your work. I'm not going to question you anymore, Lord. Lord, I want you to do as you've said. I want you to fulfill your word. Remember what Solomon prayed, 2 Chronicles chapter 7. Listen to these words in verse 13 of chapter 7 and 14. 2 Chronicles 7, 13. If I shut up heaven, that there be no rain, or if I command the locusts to devour the land, or if I send pestilence upon my people, three things. Don't we have a time of pestilence among the people now in Northern Ireland, the United Kingdom, other places? Listen to this. God's saying, if I do this, this is what I want you to do. If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. There's God's authority. Think of God's ability. He is able. He's not only willing, but he's able. Suppose if I use the illustration that the Reverend Martin used when he was amongst us doing a gospel mission at one time. Let's say I'm willing to donate a a million pounds to the work of God. Well, that desire would be a good desire in my heart and mind. And you would say, well, good on you for being willing to donate a a million pounds. But, But here's the problem. I don't have a million pound in my bank. And if I had anywhere near a, 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 that sort of money, um, I, I know that um, uh, my wife would want something different done with that money. But God is not only willing, God is able. Think of Philippians 4 verse 19. But my God shall what? Supply all your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. You know, there's a lovely wee verse over there in Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 20. Let's just look at it. Ephesians 3 and verse 20. It's a tremendous verse of encouragement. Underline it in your Bible. Take it to heart. Listen to the word of God. 
Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that worketh in us. See, think of what he is able to do. And one of the things that he's able to do is he is able to revive his work. He's able to drive back the force of darkness. He's able to visit his people. He's able to bless his church. It's his. You see, there's nothing too hard for the Lord. Was not true in the United Kingdom during the great evangelical awakening of the 1800s. Think about Northern Ireland. Has he not done it before? 1625 at the Six Mile Water, 1859, 1920s under the Reverend Nicholson, one of the greatest Irish Presbyterian ministers ever produced. Think of Wales, Evan Roberts, 1904. Think of Scotland, 1948-50 in the Isle of Lewis with the late Duncan Campbell. You see, there's God's ability. God is not only willing to do it, but God has the ability to do it. He is able. Oh, that we could grasp that. Think about God's assurance. Psalm 85, verse 6, we've read it. Will thou not revive us again, that we thy people may rejoice in thee? Um, Matthew 16, verse 18, I'll build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. See, I I could name promise after promise. I could tell you, plead the promise. I I could remind you, call me in the day of trouble, and I will answer thee. God's ears open. God's eyes upon us. We're in his heart and mind. He's thinking of us this morning. Do you know he loves us this morning? Do you know he has a greater interest in the work of God than than we actually have? Not only God's authority and God's ability and God's assurance, but think of God's activity. You see, what's God doing now? God's at work in our world. God's at work in Northern Ireland, and we we don't see that. It's imperceptible to us, but God's at work. And I want to tell you, he's at work in a greater way in other parts of the world. Oh, he's worked in the past in in the Western Hemisphere, the United States, United Kingdom. But you think of what he's doing today in China, what he's doing today in Asia, what he's doing today in, in Nepal. I mentioned this last week. You see, God is always at work. We may not see it, we may not sense it, but God has never stopped working. And yes, for Northern Ireland, the tide is out spiritually. But the tide can and will come in. Here's the encouragement to pray for revival. If we focus on the Lord, we rest in his authority. We get a sense of his ability. We we take hold of his assurance, his promise to us. And we look for his activity, his hand at work. Let me finish. Think about the expectation and prayer for revival. A prayer of Habakkuk. What's he doing? He's calling on the Lord. He's talking to his God. He's confessing not only his own sin, but the sin of the country, the sin of the church. And he's longing for cleansing from that sin. And he has a confidence to go to God. He's an expectation. His mind is focusing on the Lord. His authority, his ability, his assurance, his activity. And he's expecting the Lord to do a marvelous work. And as I've already said, and I've hinted at this, he did answer. Did God answer Habakkuk's prayer? Here's the encouragement. Yes, he did. How do I know? Well, when I read the Bible, I go to the days of King Josiah. 
I've already told you, he came to the throne when he was eight. When he was 16, he set his heart to seek the Lord. When he was 20, he set about doing a thorough reformation in the land. When he was 26, he was heartbroken because so little had been done. And he waits before the Lord in prayer. This was before the Babylonians came. This was before Jerusalem fell. This was before Judah was invaded. See, what's, what's the most significant thing in that expectation? Josiah wanted what? God to be glorified. God to be feared. God to be known. God to be rejoiced in. Remember as we finished this morning David's prayer. Psalm 85 verse 6. Underline it in your Bible. Wilt thou not revive us again that we thy people may what? Rejoice in thee. So that we can say the Lord hath done great things for us. For off we are glad. So we can say let the Lord be glorified. And what did he do? He kept on praying till the answer came. Isn't that what Elijah did? Mount Carmel, praying for rain. Can you see the prophet there on his knees with his head buried to the ground? And he prays for rain. How many times did he ask young people? Seven times. Six times. Could you imagine Elijah the prophet, the effectual fervent prayer for a righteous man availeth much? You'd think, well, all he had to do was ask once. Lord, send the rain. And, and down the rain came. No, that's not the way it worked. He prayed seven times. Six times there was nothing. And then the servant came back the seventh time and said, I see a, a cloud the size of a man's hand on the horizon. There was just a little sign of something. And the prophet got up and ran before Ahab's chariot to Jezreel. Could I encourage you? You see, there is a weariness. You've heard sermons before in revival. You've heard calls for prayer. You've heard this statement calling for the Stormont executive to, to call for a day of national prayer in Northern Ireland. And we, we have to confess there is a discouragement. There is a weariness. There, there's a despair out there. And, and, and we're being tested. We're being proven. And what does God want us to do? He wants us to give ourselves to prayer individually, collectively. Will you join me? Will, 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 will you take up Spurgeon's challenge this morning? Give me a dozen young men that know God and know how to pray and I will change London because God is able. That's what Northern Ireland's need. We, yes, let's become passionate about revival. But in our sigh, let's remember that we need to be prayerful for revival. So let's exercise prayer. Let's use the elements that Habakkuk used. Let's uh, be encouraged because God is able. And let's have this expectation that God will do it for his glory so that he'll be known so we can rejoice in him. May the Lord take these few thoughts and bless them to us this morning.